0: The 660 billionaires in America have increased their net worth over the last year, are you ready? By $1.3 trillion. Well, I don't yeah. know why I came here tonight. Well,
1: someone's got to profit off I a pandemic. I something right. No, am so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how i get down the stairs. To
2: the left of me us to the right Here I am stuck in the middle
1: with you Yes I am From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast, As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California On KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN And Eureka's KGOE Up in Oregon on the Central Coast On KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso Eugene's KEPW In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Uh, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950, KTNF. We also stream Coast Coast, And around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Fine Affiliates, all blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast. We have got a lot of mind-blowing numbers coming up on today's show. Don't worry, there will be no math.
0: (laughs) Well, there will be math, but there will be no math quiz. Yes,
1: well, I'll take care of the math here. Uh, (laughs) Along with my guest shortly, Chuck Collins from inequality.org, who frankly blew my mind with his newest report on wealth inequality in this country. But Before we get there, uh, MSNBC's Chris Hayes also has some stats today on a different matter, which includes some pretty stunning numbers. As as we all watched sort of in disbelief this past week with the Republican governors in the states of Texas and Mississippi simply announcing out of nowhere that they were ending their statewide mask mandates and they're opening up all businesses to 100% capacity, even though... Both states are seeing a huge new rise in coronavirus infections per capita over the past week. And both states are in the top 10 in the country on that score, with Mississippi actually leading the nation with a remarkable uh, 62% increase in confirmed infections over the past week. So, of course, let's throw open the doors. That, even as health officials are uh, worried about a fourth surge and are begging people to not yet lift restrictions. Anyway, uh, Chris Hayes had a stat sort of in response to all of this that he tweeted out. He said "Uh, this stat blew my mind. Do public health measures like social distancing, mask wearing and hand washing really reduce the transmission of viral respiratory illnesses uh yes, he adds, along with a graphic <clears throat> showing positive flu specimens in the seventh week of flu season, both last year and this year last year, of course, before the pandemic struck and then this year. So last year what were how many positive flu specimens were there from? 2019 to 2020, there were 174,037 cases. Cases of the flu in last year's flu season before the pandemic struck. How many have there been this year by week seven of the flu season? 1,499.
0: Wow. Now I can do that math.
1: Yeah, that's 174,000 compared to, oh, 1,500? Wow. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's because we've all been, you know, social distancing and wearing masks and washing our hands. And so not spreading the flu. Yeah. So masks make a difference. Uh, then he tweeted an even more mind blowing graphic uh, of the number of influenza associated pediatric deaths. So these would be kids, uh, I guess, who have died from the flu by this point in each of the past Four flu seasons. So back in 2017, 2018, there were 188 pediatric deaths associated with the flu. In 2018, 2019, there were 144 kids who died. In 2019 and 2020, there were 195 children who died with influenza related deaths. How many have there been so far in 2020 and 2021? You want to take a guess? Desi Doyen? No, I don't. One. Wow. So, yeah, that's kind of stark. What's different between last year and this year? Well, we're all wearing masks. We're all social distancing. We're all washing our hands.
0: That's about 190 families that are not devastated by losing a child to the flu this year.
1: But, of course, it's more than half a million who are, thanks to COVID and uh, the people, frankly, who weren't wearing masks and who weren't taking care to uh, try to keep everyone safe.
0: Or were unfortunately exposed to other people who weren't wearing masks. So even if they were careful, they were exposed to people who weren't careful.
1: Correct. And now we have to watch out for all of those people from Texas and Mississippi because, hey, you're free now. Freedom, take off your masks. I'm sure it'll be fine. Those masks have been holding you back anyway, right? What an encroachment of your freedom to help kill other people. Never mind you. It's the other people I'm worried about. But, you know, giddy up. What could possibly go wrong? So uh, in some slightly more encouraging news today, before we get to my guest, encouraging because it's accountability news, which is pretty much my favorite type these days, a couple of weeks ago, when Mississippi's Benny Thompson, uh, uh, congressman and chair of the House Homeland Security Committee, filed a lawsuit with the NAACP against Donald Trump and several others, including uh, two right-wing extremist organizations for inciting and or carrying out the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, we suggested that there would likely be more such suits filed in the days ahead. Well, here we go. Former House impeachment manager, Congressman Eric Swalwell, on Friday sued former President Donald Trump, his son Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Alabama's Republican Congressman Mo Brooks in a second major lawsuit seeking to hold Trump and his allies accountable for inciting the insurrection on January 6th. The new lawsuit by Swalwell. California Democrat uh, who helped to lead the impeachment arguments against Trump for inciting the insurrection follows that similar suit filed last month by Congressman Benny Thompson against Trump, Giuliani and the extremist groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Swalwell's case makes some of the same claims as Thompson's, citing a civil rights law meant to counter the Ku Klux Klan's intimidation of elected officials. But it also alleges that Trump, Trump Jr., Giuliani and Brooks broke Washington, D.C. laws, including an anti-terrorism act by inciting the riot and they uh, and that they aided and abetted violent rioters and inflicted emotional distress on members of Congress. The lawsuit filed as in Washington D.C.'s federal district court alleges, quote, as a direct and foreseeable consequence of the defendant's false and incendiary allegations of fraud and theft and in direct response to the defendant's express calls for violence at the rally, a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol. Many participants in the attack have since revealed that they were acting on what they believed to be former President Trump's orders in service of their country. The defendants, in short, convinced the mob that something was occurring that, if actually true, might indeed justify violence and then sent that mob to the Capitol with violence laced calls for immediate action. The now two and there could be more lawsuits from members of Congress who are directly affected by the attack comes as Trump faces mounting pressures in investigations by House committees seeking his financial records, as well as both civil and criminal probes related to fraud that he has allegedly carried out in his private businesses and for his post-election actions, such as in Georgia, where a grand jury is convening. This week, I believe, to consider Trump's apparent violation of a state law that bars attempts to influence election officials to fraudulently change election results, as Trump was recorded doing in January with the uh, secretary of state there. That crime is punishable by one to three years in jail. He has not yet, of course, been charged with any crime, however. But should either this suit or Thompson's uh, proceed, it would mean the former president and his allies would then be subject to discovery and depositions, potentially exposing details and evidence that uh, were not released uh, during the Senate impeachment trial in January. Swalwell was locked down in the House chamber during that siege. He claims that Trump, Trump Jr., Giuliani and Brooks prompted the attack on the Congress. Each man had told the crowd, he said, that Joe Biden's electoral certification in Congress could be blocked and that Trump's supporters should fight, according to the lawsuit. Trump directly incited the violence at the Capitol that followed and then watched approvingly as the building was overrun. The lawsuit says the horrific events of January 6th were a direct and foreseeable consequence of the defendant's unlawful actions. He notes that in Trump's own speech just before the siege began. He told the crowd to, quote, show strength and, quote, walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. Brooks, in his speech, had declared today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. And then he asked the rally attendees if they were willing to fight Giuliani, for his part, said during the rally that let's have trial by combat And Trump Jr. said that the crowd was a message to Republicans who weren't fighting to overturn the election results. You can be a hero or you can be a zero. Trump Jr. said at the rally, if you're going to be the zero and not the hero, we're coming for you and we're going to have a good time doing it. So the lawsuit uh, connects those speeches directly to the crowd's response uh, which was often a spontaneous chance of fight for Trump, fight for Trump. Uh, so we will be keeping our eyes on that as well. And by the way, you will recall that after uh, Trump... Uh, You know, everyone reports that he was uh, acquitted in his second impeachment trial. In fact, he was found guilty by a majority of senators. 57 to 43 found that he was guilty as charged in that impeachment trial, with all 50 Democrats voting uh, guilty, along with seven Republicans. And afterwards, after he was, yes, found guilty by a majority of senators, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who voted not guilty, appeared to point to both criminal prosecutors and private parties who could take Trump to court over the riot. McConnell said that Trump was, quote, still liable for everything he did while in office. And he noted, quote, we have civil litigation from which a president would not be immune. Meanwhile, in Congress, specifically in the US Senate on Thursday night and into Friday morning, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin made good on his threat to make the Senate clerks read aloud the entire 628-page COVID-19 uh, COVID-19 relief package, which was passed By the U.S. House on Wednesday night and is now being debated in the Senate. That reading of the bill stretched from around 3.20 p.m. on Thursday afternoon until just past 2 a.m. on Friday. Senator Johnson said he was insisting on the exercise to show people how much of a boondoggle the $1.9 trillion package was. Which, by the way, is the same amount that the 2017 Trump Republican tax cuts, mostly for the wealthy, had actually cost. Johnson claimed that this package is bloated with unnecessary money and provisions like, you know, helping people not die with vaccine distribution, helping kids go back to schools safely, helping people not starve after losing their jobs through no fault of their own and helping States and cities recover after losing hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue due to millions of Americans who are now out of work, losing both their incomes and their health care in the bargain, which, yes, this bill also will help take care of, just to name a few of the unnecessary monies and provisions that Johnson uh, was referring to. Johnson and his fellow Republicans are hoping to draw out the inevitable passage of the emergency pandemic relief bill as long as possible because that's how they roll with Johnson telling reporters that he's planning three sign-up shifts to make sure that an enormous number of amendments get voted on <clears throat> during the uh, so-called voterrama that is allowed where any senator can, force a vote on any amendment they like. That's uh, because this is a budget reconciliation uh, process, which allows revenue-related bills to be adopted by a simple majority vote. But first, he forced the world's most tedious live audiobook reading of more than 600 pages on Thursday night.
0: Boy, I feel sorry for the staff. I mean, they treat them so badly.
1: Yes, of course they do. Anyway, uh, as uh, all of this finally ended, Johnson or another Republican in his stead had to remain on the floor all night in order to object in case another senator asked to dispense with the reading at any time. So Johnson had to be there pretty much all night. And then when the Senate finally convened the next morning to proceed with three hours of debate on the bill, it was down from the original 20 why well because neither johnson nor any other republican objected at the end of the that what was it 10 or 11 hour reading when van chris van holland of maryland actually moved to change the original 20 hours of planned debate time down to just three hours for some reason. Now, earlier reporting said that Johnson was not on the floor at the time, so he wasn't there to object. But apparently he was there and he just either didn't hear it, didn't understand it, or he just simply didn't care for some reason. So in the end, Ron Johnson trying to delay everything seems to have failed. It actually ended up shortening the time debating this package that is going to pass no matter what.
0: (laughs) All right, good.
1: So, yeah, Chuck Schumer opened Friday's proceedings by saying, uh, first and foremost, I want to thank everyone on the floor staff who worked late into the night. And then he added uh, that, uh, as for our friend from Wisconsin, I hope he enjoyed his Thursday evening. Hmm. And then they commenced with debate and Voterama, as Republicans pretended that $1.9 trillion was just an outrageous sum of money and as some Democrats entertained the notion as well and that maybe the emergency unemployment extension should just be $300 instead of $400. All of which, as my upcoming guest puts in a glaring spotlight this week, is just some pretty pathetic nickel and diming after all. Given the size of the problem and the size of the fortunes made by a handful of billionaires over this past year amid this pandemic, that alone, the fortune they made could virtually pay for this entire otherwise, quote unquote, huge emergency relief bill. That amazing story is next on the broadcast. And you may want to sit down first or You know, pull your car to the side of the road or something. That's straight (laughs) ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Go on, take money and run. Woo-hoo, indeed. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from brandblog.com. As Congress wrestles over the final stages of Joe Biden's emergency COVID relief package... The huge, quote unquote, huge $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan final amendments are being made to determine, for example, if the $1,400 individual checks promised to those making less than 75000 should phase out entirely as originally planned to those making more than $100,000 a year or if the phase out should occur to those making More than $80,000, as more conservative Democrats have been arguing. Also, should the planned $400 weekly expanded unemployment benefit be pared back to just $300 instead, but extended through September instead of through August, as adopted in the House version of the bill? The hope for a $15 an hour minimum wage increase seems to have been scotched entirely at this point. Even though it was included in the House bill because the Senate parliamentarian deemed that it was against the rules to be included in the budget reconciliation package that will require a simple majority for passage in the U.S. Senate versus most bills that still ridiculously need to receive 60 votes in order to overcome the undemocratic Jim Crow era relic filibuster rules in the upper chamber. In any event, so far there are Zero Republicans in either the House or the Senate who appear willing to vote for what is much needed relief for individual Americans right now, including also businesses and schools, as well as states and cities, all of which have been slammed by the covid pandemic over the past year, as the Institute for Policy study notes in a new report. Over 28 million Americans have fallen ill with the virus, and more than half a million have now died from it. Meanwhile, over 76 million have lost work between March of last year and January of this year. 18 million were collecting unemployment as of the end of January this year. Nearly 100,000 businesses have permanently closed. 12 million workers had likely lost employer-sponsored health insurance during the pandemic by August of last year. That's not helpful during a pandemic. Some 24 million adults reported in the first month of this year that their household did not have enough food in the past week. 11 million children lived in a household where kids did not eat enough because the household could not afford to fully feed them. Now, to be fair, I shouldn't say that all individuals and businesses have been slammed by the COVID pandemic over the past year. In fact, some have made out big time, even as the vast majority of Americans have struggled to hang on to their jobs and make rent and mortgage payments and, yes, feed their families. A new report out last week, an update to an earlier report called Billionaire Bonanza 2020 from the Institute of Policy Studies, suggests a few Americans are doing very well indeed, during the time of covid, and it just happens to be most of the folks who were doing very well, indeed, before the time of covid, as luck would have it. As the U.S. crosses the threshold of half a million deaths from the covid pandemic, the reports author Chuck Collins wrote last week, the nation's billionaires continue to reap extraordinary financial gains after 11 months of Of pandemic misery, where millions have lost their jobs, health and wealth, total U.S. billionaire wealth increased. Are you sitting down? Increased one point three trillion dollars since mid-March of 2020. That's an increase of 44 percent. That's right. Those who are already the richest in the U.S. have seen their worth, their net worth, rise 44 percent over the past year as millions of Americans have lost their jobs and or their homes. As of uh, the market close on February 19, Collins writes, the country's six hundred and sixty four billionaires now have combined wealth. Of four point three trillion dollars. That is up from just under three trillion dollars back in March of 2020. These findings are based on Forbes data compiled by Americans for Tax Fairness and the Institute for Policy Studies. The billionaire's one point three trillion dollar pandemic wealth gain alone could pay for over two-thirds of President Biden's proposed $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package, with congressional Repu- which congressional Republicans have attacked as too costly. And here's a data point also worth sitting down for. At $4.2 trillion, the total wealth of America's 664 billionaires— that's just 664 Americans— is also more than two-thirds higher than the $2.4 trillion in total wealth held by the entire bottom half of the U.S. population, or 165 million Americans. There's a lot of numbers there, but I think that's worth repeating so you understand what I just said. Six hundred and sixty four American billionaires by themselves are worth four point two trillion dollars, just six hundred and sixty four people. They own more wealth by themselves, two thirds more wealth by themselves than the entire bottom half of the U.S. population which includes 165 million americans now maybe it is just me but something seems not Right about that, actually, uh, particularly as it is that bottom half that is now struggling so hard to keep their jobs, keep a roof over their heads and food on the uh, on the family table in the middle of a pandemic. When those six hundred and sixty four billion uh, billionaires, those six hundred and sixty four people saw their own wealth grow by a collective one point three trillion That, as Congress bickers about whether people who have lost their job through no fault of their own should get either $300 or $400 per week, and should it be through August or through September. And whether $1,400 individual payments should cut off entirely for those making $80,000 a year, or if we should let it go out to those making $100,000 a year. Meanwhile... The $1.3 trillion wealth gain, remember, this is the stuff they just made over the past year. Just those 664 U.S. billionaires alone since March of last year, the the gain that they made over that past year could pay for a stimulus check of more than $3,900 for every single one of the roughly 331 million people in the U.S., Working just from the profits those billionaires made over the past year, a family of four could receive a stimulus of more than $15,000. That, even as Republicans in Congress resisted sending families stimulus checks during most of last year, and they are opposing it now, claiming, oh, we can't afford them. My mind was blown last year when I read the original report from this group and we spoke to its author about it. And my mind is blown again almost a year later with this update. The author of this report joins us next to continue blowing our mind and to discuss what the hell we can do about it right now, including a plan by Senator Elizabeth Warren just introduced, just reintroduced, actually, in the Senate that frankly should be passed at the first possible chance, in my opinion. Chuck Collins of Inequality.org joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. (laughs)
0: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
1: It's hysterical. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. So, yes, as the updated report on the billionaire bonanza 2020 from the Institute for Policy Studies described this past week, just six hundred and sixty four billionaires increased their own personal wealth by one point three trillion dollars during the past 11 months. Since the pandemic started in the U.S. and all the rest of us have been struggling just to stay alive, that is uh, two thirds their gains uh, make up two thirds of the entire cost of the covid relief package that is being debated in Congress right now, which includes fourteen hundred dollar checks to those making seventy five thousand dollars or less a year. The gains made by those 664 billionaires over the past year could have paid for $3,900 checks for every single one of the 331 million people in the U.S., or $15,000 for a family of four. Again, that is just on the gains made over the past year by those 664 billionaires. Their gains, not their Total wealth, just the money made during the pandemic, is also more than two thirds higher than the total wealth held by the bottom half of the entire U.S. population. That is 165 million Americans. Joining us now, once again, is the author of that now updated report. Chuck Collins is an expert on U.S. inequality and the Racial Wealth Divide, and the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits Inequality.org. He is also the author of a number of books, including the popular Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, and his newest book, out just this month, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions about what he describes as the wealth defense industry. Oh, Mr. Collins, welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Brad. Good to be with you.
1: Good to have you blowing my mind, (laughs) as ever. Uh, Holy cow. I mean, it really is mind-blowing. Do any of these numbers come up in Congress when you know, debating what is sort of being universally described as a huge COVID relief package. And it actually is huge on paper compared to previous relief or stimulus bills. But, you know, compared to the amount of money sucked up over the past year by just 664 Americans, it ain't really that huge at all, in truth, when when you're talking about a package that is actually for 331 million people.
2: Well, the the good news is uh, you can hear these numbers on the Senate floor. Different members of Congress have been using them. Senator Warren and, and Representative Pramila Jayapal, mm-hmm. when they introduced their wealth tax on Monday, mm-hmm. talked exactly about what you just what you just recited, Brad, as the case for why they should have a wealth tax. So the good news is people are talking about this.
1: That is good news. Yeah, and actually I have a clip. We're going to uh, talk about Elizabeth Warren's proposal uh, in a moment, but... Uh, you know, you break this down even farther in your uh, in your report. You you c- c- cite again; these are people who were already billionaires, most of them, before the COVID ec- epidemic, and prior to that, in the nation, there was only one what you call a centibillionaire. I guess that would be someone who has a hundred billion or more. There was only one of those in the U.S. as of uh, February of last year. Now, there are four of them. I think the one last year was Jeff Bezos, and now there are four, um, or almost four. You want to name them for us?
2: Let's see. I guess it's uh, Elon Musk, who's had surprising gains, like $70 billion gains. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, Mark Zuckerberg sort of goes up and down at the $100 billion level. And, of course, Bill Gates has been hanging around close to that number. So, yeah, those are our four on a on a good Mm -hmm. market day like today they will be sent to billionaires
1: the uh... you uh, and and since you didn't have the numbers here i think for i think it was zuckerberg i added up the numbers for just no actually you didn't have them for gates so i added up the numbers for musk bezos and zuckerberg just their gains over the past year just Mm -hmm. those three they saw their wealth increase by three hundred and twelve billion those three people well the entire relief package for cities and states that they are uh passing now in congress uh for cities and states who have been slammed by lost revenue over the past year is just 350 billion in the biden relief package uh which republicans are furious about they believe that that should be zero dollars to hard-hit states and cities but just those three guys profited 312 billion am i reading that right chuck
2: no you got it right and and uh You know, the the Republicans dismiss this as a, what do they call it, the blue state bailout? Yes. But states and localities, which do not have the opportunity to print money like the federal government, really are reeling and will be reeling for several years. And so this aid to local and state governments is something that all of us benefit from when our towns are laying off public officials and and cutting services Mm -hmm. and nickel and diming us with other taxes, this is great to have this federal support, if it can happen.
1: When our water pipes aren't freezing up and uh, the the power system's shutting down, yeah, it'd be nice to spend some money improving that. Now, of course, all of this uh, that we're talking about, Chuck, is even worse when it is broken down by racial and gender disparities. What do we know about that, uh, that sort of inequality of our inequality, if you will?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, both I think of the inequalities of income and wealth and the racial wealth divide are, are were kinda like the pre existing conditions as we went into the pandemic. Um and here's one statistic that just, you know, makes me want to sit down, which is, you know, the number of people who have no financial reserves, zero or negative financial wealth. Uh and one stat through the lens of race is, you know, fourteen percent of white households have zero or negative wealth, mm. but Double that, 28% of black households, 26% of Latino households, zero or negative wealth. That was before the pandemic. Uh, And I think we will see those numbers go up. So that's just an indicator of of the number of households that are kind of precarious, don't have a lot to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you look really, the bottom half of U.S. households don't have a lot to fall back on. Uh that's why six hundred sixty billionaires can have almost twice as much as the bottom half of US households. Because <laughs> the bottom half doesn't have much.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Uh, Well, so hopefully now the the problem is clear from from your report. And actually, well, let me take that back. It's clear, I know, to you and me, Chuck, and probably everyone listening to the show today. But before we talk about solutions, is any of this really even considered to be a problem by the majority of those in, for example, Congress who could do something about this or. Uh, is this viewed as the way, hey, this is the way American capitalism is supposed to work? It's a great success story.
0: Well, I, c-
2: Congress is not the best sample because they are, as a, as a group of lawmakers, many of them are captured by big donors and, and the wealthiest interests in the society. They're, they're really not represented. What's interesting to me is two-thirds, 80%, closer to 80% of the population is alarmed by these trends support taxing wealth and, ta- and, and taxing the very wealthy at higher rates, understand that concentrations of wealth and power in a few hands really do undermine the quality of life for everybody there. It's bad for the economy. Mm-hmm. It's clearly bad for democracy. And it's something we should do something about. So anybody who wants to get out politically uh, and talk about these issues is really jumping to the head of a very big parade, because mm. people are very concerned.
1: Well, uh, for those of us, uh, at least, who do see this as a problem, and I know that uh, we mentioned Senator Elizabeth Warren and uh, Congresswoman uh, Jayapal, uh, they see it as such, and and we will talk about uh, that wealth tax solution specifically in a moment, uh, and and what else you might recommend as a solution here. But does this uh, package, Joe Biden and the Democrats' $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, help in any way to sort of level the playing field, or is it sort of a, a, a salve, if you will, to staunch the bleeding right now for most Americans over the past year.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's really important to just help people right now. And this, this legislation would do that. I mean, extending unemployment insurance, which is going to expire mid-month, mm-hmm. increasing the federal contribution there, that extra $600 a month has been a lifeline for so many households. Support for small businesses that are shuttered or on the brink right now. These small business owners, many of them, are sitting there going, "Should I, should I throw in the towel, mm. uh, or should I give up the market monopoly to the, you know, the mega businesses?" And by, by throwing them a lifeline, they're going to be able to mate, hopefully ride it through to the other side, so that they can reopen post-pandemic. So mm. it's absolutely essential to sort of help us weather this rocky time. Uh, where people who who have no you know who are not able to do work or are in a situation where they have to care for somebody who's sick can can weather this time
1: so I, it sounds like you're saying it's it, is it fair to say that uh, this uh, this package this rescue plan while it may not decrease the inequality gap at least it may keep it from getting too much worse until we can get through this
2: yeah I mean I think one of the risks is that the pandemic will all will be an accelerant on inequality, Mm -hmm. that more people will have zero or negative wealth at the other side, and that this concentration of wealth will continue. So, yeah, I would say that it's sort of maybe it it keeps us from from the situation from getting worse.
1: So one solution uh, being offered, and I guess it's, you know, sort of looking beyond the pandemic somewhat, Although, you know, they could pass it tomorrow if they had the will in the House and the Senate to do so. But uh, one solution being offered comes from Elizabeth Warren uh, and uh, Pramila Jayapal. It's a wealth tax, a tax on the wealthiest millionaires and billionaires, not even on all of them. Just the top, starting with uh, in uh, Warren's plan, uh, those who have... $50 $50 million or more, and it's not even a tax, as I understand it, on that first $50 million. It's on everything above that. She explained the new version of her proposal a few nights ago on Rachel Maddow. She's been... Uh, Warren had uh, you know, brought this up during her presidential run. Uh, she cites what I believe is your report, though she didn't mention it by name. And as Maddo had noted, that a wealth tax, as, as you have noted as well, is wildly popular, at least among voters, including Democrats and Republicans alike. Let me play her explanation of this uh, uh, this plan and then we'll discuss it.
0: This is wildly popular because people get it that the system today is unfair and rigged. So let me remind everybody what the wealth tax is. It says on fortunes bigger than $50 million, on your 50 millionth and first dollar, you got to pitch in two cents and two cents on every dollar after that until you hit a billion dollars in assets and then a few pennies more. This would make that top one-tenth of one percent, this would only affect about 100,000 families in America, this would make them pay, and it would produce about $3 trillion in revenue. That's money for childcare. That's money for infrastructure. That's money to build back better, like Joe Biden says. We needed this before, when I was running for president, but just understand now that the pandemic has hit while millions of families have slipped into poverty millions of families have are unemployed what's happened at the very top is the 660 billionaires in America have increased their net worth over the last year are you ready by 1.3 trillion dollars all we're asking well. is Two cents, two cents to help build a future for the rest of America. Now, to me,
1: that makes uh, it's obvious. It makes wild sense. It's similar to the proposal that she had you know, when she was running for president. But Chuck Collins, if it is so popular, why did she ne- neither win the, the, the nomination with that proposal? Although to be more fair, there's a lot of reasons she didn't win. But why didn't any of the other candidates, for example, Joe Biden or even Bernie Sanders, if I recall, adopt that proposal as their own?
2: Well, uh, just to be clear, Bernie Sanders actually introduced his own wealth tax mm-hmm. uh, and has come on as a co-sponsor of this one. Good. So, uh, But but what I think is interesting is that she transformed the political discussion. She may not have won, mm-hmm. but this issue of a wealth tax was not on the agenda two years ago. Uh, it was not something we were talking about. And now, you know, it has uh, dozens of sponsors in the Senate and, and many more in the House coming on board. It is, uh, you know, if you think about it, a new tax regime that hasn't existed before, mm-hmm. and she's built enormous support and popularity for it, uh, and it's really just a—I think going back, it's a—the re- fact that it isn't a law is simply a reflection of the power of wealthy interests to block change in our political system. It's not that they're changing the political system; they're able to stop and thwart and block change. And that's unfortunately what we're up against. That's the debate we're watching right now in the Senate, Mm -hmm. where half the members of the Senate, they don't have a program to help America get through these hard times. They just want to block the one that would actually make a difference. And unfortunately, the Republicans have kind of been the party of no, because they don't want government to succeed in making a difference in people's lives, because that would kind of undermine their whole program.
1: Now, as this proposal uh, clearly has uh, something to do with the federal budget, Uh, so one would think that it could be included uh, in a budget reconciliation package, Uh, if not this one, uh, Democrats have the chance to pass another one later this year. I, and I'm going to guess. Well, I don't know. Will 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 they be able to get even a single Republican to vote on this? Again, it's popular among Republican voters. But, you know, so is the this particular uh, relief package. So is HR1. So is a bunch of other stuff that Republicans won't vote for. But on the presumption that the Republicans won't vote for this, is this something that that you can even pass with Democrats or enough Democrats in favor of this new idea of taxing Americans' wealth?
2: Well, I mean, you know, we saw eight Democrats vote against raising the minimum wage. So I'm not sure we're going to get the full complement of Democrats in the short term. I think it's one of these things where the pressure is going to continue to rise from below. But, you know, the more the billionaires win, the more everybody else is sort of uh, reeling and, and just struggling to survive the, the the sharper the focus will get and people will start to win and lose elections based on whether or not they mm-hmm. support something like the wealth tax um, so I, I, you mm-hmm. know the, the reality is nobody's talking about revenue right now republicans or democrats and it didn't happen during the trump relief bills it didn't happen during the you know the covid and stimulus bills of the past we've kind of punted that but Uh, You're absolutely right, Brad. The next bite at the apple, the next budget reconciliation bill will have revenue raisers. It it really has to, partly because President Biden has an ambitious uh, infrastructure agenda. He Mm -hmm. wants to spend money to create jobs and and help us move toward a, a green economy and fix infrastructure and power grids in Texas and all kinds of problems that we're facing. And so that's where a wealth tax proposal, alongside other really old revenue proposals will will be on the ballot and you are unfortunately right they probably won't get any republican votes <laughs> and that's why we're in this pickle that we're in well you know but that- again with the budget for reconciliation they they won't have to have a republican vote that's the whole the beauty of it I guess P-
1: presu- presuming they get all of the democrats on board which is not necessarily something that is uh should be taken for granted I, yeah i mean i would i would boy would i love to see could you imagine a 3 trillion dollar infrastructure package passed through reconciliation and be completely paid for, if they wish, through Elizabeth Warren's $3 trillion uh, wealth tax. That works for me. Question is, Chuck Collins, uh, is it even constitutional? Do we know if a wealth—because that's what we hear from Republicans now. Oh, I don't even think uh, that's—you can tax the amount of wealth that people have. That's not constitutional. What's the thinking on that right now? Does anybody actually know?
2: Well, it is a good question. Uh, you, you know, when Senator Warren rolled out the bill, she, she uh, produced two letters signed by uh, 20 uh, legal scholars saying, essentially, the bill is constitutional. Um, there, there is this issue that, uh, you know, we had to change our Constitution to pass the income tax and the estate tax back in 1916. Hmm. Uh, the whole, it's a little wonky, but the problem is uh, we, we, you can't tax stationary wealth at the federal level. Uh, Of course, we do it all the time at the local level, property taxes. States can have wealth and asset taxes, but we have this interesting constitutional issue. So that's a little bit undecided. The other issue that people raise is uh, just the implementation. Oh, how are we going to, How it's going to be awfully hard to to get these wealthy people to file their tax returns and all that. That's more of a red herring. Uh, Most of these very wealthy people actually know what they're worth and know what their assets are worth. And it, they may have to hire somebody to evaluate uh, the first year that this tax goes into effect. But after that, it'd be very easy to, mu- to update mm-hmm. an annual return. Uh, and again, these are people with $50 million or more. Right. Uh, they have a whole armada of uh, tax attorneys at their disposal uh, to, to help them do that first filing of mm-hmm. their tax return and and evaluation of what they have. It happens all the time with the state taxes. It's a mm-hmm. one-time event but uh, we, we know how to value assets and even complicated assets like that fancy painting on your wall bread uh-huh. we will get we'll get an estimate on that <laughs> oh by the way the your assets under fifty thousand are excluded from that. So 50, million,
1: to, fifty million. Uh,
2: fifty million. million. fifty million. But I meant uh, in, in terms of valuation. Ah. If you have uh, you know a giant jar of coins
1: uh-huh.
2: uh, you don't have to count them all. Okay. Uh, if you have a small painting that's not worth fifty thousand then that does not have to go on to your tax return. So there's sort of a there's a valuation threshold. Yeah, there's some there's some provisions in there that Uh, make
1: implementation easier. Uh, Yeah, and make uh, loopholes easier, which I want to get to in a second, uh, because you write about that in your new book. But very quickly, uh, beyond wealth tax, uh, Chuck Collins, do do you have any other sort of quick recommendations? And I say quick, because we we don't have time to delve into them, and it's probably going to be a while before we get to any of them. But just to sort of put them on our radar, what can be done beyond a wealth tax to begin evening the inequality gap that you so expertly uh, highlight both uh, in your book and at inequality.org?
2: Well, there are actually a couple that might move very quickly. Uh, one is what, what we call a millionaire surtax, which is just a 10% increase on uh, income tax, increase mm-hmm. on incomes over $3 million, whether mm-hmm. the money comes from capital gains or from wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would raise uh, almost a trillion dollars. A financial transaction tax, a, a penny on every $4 of financial transactions exempting the small traders, that would raise substantial revenue. Uh, and then there's Biden talks about this consistently. Why is it that we tax capital gains at such lower rates than we tax income from work? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if we tax them at the same level? Uh, so President Biden has made a case mm-hmm. for correcting that problem. So there's a couple more trillion dollars to, to add to your uh, revenue revenue. Yeah. Uh,
1: Program. Yeah. And those could be included, it seems to me, in the uh, uh, whatever the next uh, budget reconciliation package is. Democrats say it's going to be on. Infrastructure and it sounds like there's a lot of pretty easy ways to uh, to pay for it if they're included in that package. After all, the 1.9 trillion dollar tax cut that Republicans gave to mostly wealthy people back in uh, 2017 was also done under reconciliation as well. So hey, if it works for them, it should work for the Democrats. It seems to me. Finally, let's talk uh, very quickly about your new book out this month. Congratulations, by the way. The, uh, the Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions. In it, you describe what you call the, the shadowy wealth defense industry. What is that, Chuck?
2: Well, uh, I sort of alluded to it. It's this, uh, it's this whole sector, if you will, that uh, very wealthy people, and I mean people with like $30 million or more, mm-hmm. uh, hire to uh, hide their money using things like trust, uh, shell companies, anonymous, offshore accounts. They have a whole menu of kind of loopholes and, and uh, gimmicks and trusts that they use to move money around. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to implement a lot of these programs to tax the very wealthy if this system is in place. Uh, we, we need to close down, if you will, all the escape hatches that the, the super rich use. Um, so, and it, it's totally doable. The good mm-hmm. news is there's But we need to sort of start talking about it because there's basically one tax system for that ultra-wealthy group, and there's one for the rest of us. And we just need to close down the back door.
1: Is, Is this actually... An industry, another, or is it sort of ad hoc? You know, you find a lawyer who can help you with this or that, or is there actually an industry? In other words, if I and I, I'm pretty sure this is going to happen, if I uh, go out next week and win the lottery and you know win fifty or sixty million dollars, like I say, I'm almost certain it's going to happen. Will it be easy for me to find someone? To, 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 to help me with these loopholes, is there a, an actual industry and an actual menu, as you describe, of uh, options that I will be given as a 50 millionaire?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Brad. Uh, and I can help you find specific people. But Thank you. Uh, there, there basically is this growing industry. As wealth has pooled upward into the hands of a few, more and more people get up for work every day, whether they're an accountant or a tax attorney. Uh, and there's a profession called wealth manager, which is you actually can get a certificate, the Society for Trust and mm. Estate Planners. Mm-hmm. Or if you're really wealthy, maybe if you have $200 million or more, you might form a family office, which would then bring all those services in-house, if you will, or, or mm-hmm. in-mansion. Uh, so you would have your own people working for you on your behalf, kind of with a long-term kind of dynastic perspective. How do you help your children? Your grandchildren, your great, your unborn great grandchildren, uh, get that wealth. Keep keep it away from the taxes. Keep it away from you know the uh, lawsuits. Uh-huh. Keep it away from the creditors. Uh, maybe your ex wife or ex spouse. Uh, you know, so so those are all. There's a profession of people uh, who will help you uh, put your money in the shadows and reduce your taxes.
1: Uh, you also uh, note, by the way, in the description for the new book that you yourself inherited a fortune, and I don't know that we've discussed that. I know you talk about it in some of your other books as well, born on third base, etc. Uh, we we haven't. I don't know that we've talked about it before. Uh, so all of these things that we have been talking about here, all of these solutions to all of these problems, presumably Chuck Collins would hurt you as well. Aren't you concerned about that?
2: Well, I should say I got a very intimate front row seat into how these inequalities work. In fact, the whole wealth defense industry is something that I've seen up front. Mm -hmm. I know how these folks work. Uh, I myself made the impulsive decision when I was 26, and that was a long time ago, uh, to give away the inheritance I received and and effectively become disinherited. So uh, unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't really apply to me directly. But uh, it, it did give me an extraordinary insight into the workings of the super wealthy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's, some of these are people who I love very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it has even nuance for me. But, uh, but yeah, I think it, 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 part, of, part of my job is to explain how that system works. And, actually, in this book, I interview a whole bunch of those wealth defense managers and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and professionals to learn the secrets of the trade, if you will.
1: And I'm just kicking myself that I didn't meet you when you were 26. Uh, Chuck Collins, uh, your name what my wife,
2: That's yeah. actually the person i married to. The same thing. <laughs> if only I could have talked some sense into him. Yeah. I bet not have to work for a
1: living. I bet she does. Uh, Chuck Collins is the author of The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions. Senator Bernie Sanders says about that book, Chuck's book reveals a blueprint for reversing this obscene inequality so we can take back our democracy and ensure that our government works for everybody, not just the billionaire class and the wealthy campaign contributors. Well said, Mr. Sanders. Uh, Chuck is also an expert on U.S. inequality and and the racial wealth divide. He's the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits Inequality.org. You can find them on the Twitters at Inequality.org, and you can find Chuck himself at Chuck9921. Chuck Collins, always great speaking with you, my friend. Hope to do it again soon in the future
2: thanks brad it was great talking to you
1: thank you sir okay we have got to go thanks to our producer desi doyan to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us it's always greatly appreciated if you missed any portion of today's show download it anytime for free at bradblog.com that of course is made possible by those of you who support our work by hitting that donate button bradblog.com slash donate uh, we didn't make $1.3 trillion uh, over the pandemic. Anyway, you can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That is it. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.